Philip Gerard will be a familiar name to many of you, particularly to those of you that listen to us in the afternoon, uh, to NPR's All Things Considered. He contributes frequently to that uh, program. He has done a number of documentaries for, uh, for PBS as the author of a number of different books, most recently a book that is really extraordinary, which takes us into a, a chapter of the Second World War that uh, will be completely unknown to basically all of us. Uh, the book is called Secret Soldiers, How a Troop of American Artists, Designers, and Sonic Wizards Won World War II's Battle of Deception Against the Germans. Uh, and Philip Gerard joins us for a few minutes on the morning show to uh, talk about his book, Secret Soldiers, published by Plume Book. Philip Gerard, we welcome you to the program. My great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, in a nutshell, tell us what Secret Soldiers is about. Secret Soldiers tells the story of about 1,100 very special guys, artists and designers and actors and so forth, who were recruited and combined into a unit unlike any the U.S. Army had before or since. Their mission was a very simple one, to deceive the Germans about when and where American and Allied armies would attack between D-Day and the final crossing of the Rhine River that led to the downfall of Germany. And they had a number of ways of doing this, but basically they were creating one big magic trick on the battlefield. These guys could make whole armies disappear. They could create phantom armored divisions, basically conjured out of radio traffic, uh, what they called rubber duckies, which were blow-up neoprene dummies that resembled tanks and artillery pieces, actors who would infiltrate into places where collaborators were known to be and pretend to be uh, releasing information that they shouldn't, and sound effects. They had a thing they called sonic deception, which basically meant they could broadcast high-fidelity sound for up to 15 miles across the battlefield and create the impression of just about anything they wanted in the minds of those people listening across the river in the dark or behind a screen of trees. One of the things that you mention is the fact that uh, this was done under uh, an amazingly complete cloak of secrecy and that uh, the vast majority of, of U.S. soldiers, for instance, had no idea that these special troops uh, existed or that they were even doing this work. Right. This secrecy lasted well into the 1980s, and there were lots of good reasons for it. One reason is that deception most often is used out of weakness. And had we had all the armored divisions and all the infantry divisions that we needed throughout the Second World War, there would have been no reason to conjure them out of thin air. So you really don't want those guys in you know, the 28th Infantry sleeping next to you to know that instead of the armored division, which they think is covering their left, in fact, you've got five half-tracks and a bunch of loudspeakers and a, you know, a bunch of uh, you know, kind of nerdy guys that came out of the University of Chicago or somewhere <laughs> playing sound effects into the dark when there's a real, very real Panzer division sitting across the river licking its chops waiting for you. you know? Yeah, uh, I suppose it, it, the, the, the whole enterprise loses its effectiveness completely if it isn't done in secret. Right, although at, toward the end of the war, they began to get very clever. And at one point uh, during the Battle of the Bulge, when they needed to get some relief to Bastogne, for instance, the planners in uh, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, which is what the official name for these guys was, decided that they would try something really interesting. And what they decided to do was to take two divisions, the 4th Armored Division and the 80th Infantry Division, and divide them up and just simply make two of them. One of them was real, and one of them, of course, was fake, conjured solely out of radio traffic. They knew the Germans would know that one of them was fake, but they were counting on the fact that they had a 50% chance that the Germans would guess wrong, and in fact they did. 
the Germans followed the radio traffic instead of the real units. The real units ended up linking up with the beleaguered troops in Bastogne. And it's one of the untold stories of how that siege was actually lifted. Of course, almost every bit of this story is an untold story in a sense. Right. And that's one of the things I want to ask you about before we probe into a few details. Um, I, I like how, I think in the introduction you said that uh, uh, after all of this work of deception, which, uh, which this special unit did, their last disappearing act was to vanish from history. Right. And indeed, as you, as you say, all of this was cl- cloaked in almost complete secrecy uh, into, I think you said, the 1980s. Well into the 80s, yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, when did that cloak eventually become lifted, and was it in any sort of conscious way? I mean, what, did, did someone finally make a, a sort of an official decision that now we may begin to talk about this in a more open fashion, or, or was their work more sort of discovered? I think the declassification proceeded as many times it does by inches. That is, by the time it was declassified, pretty much anybody who knew anything about it in detail was long gone of the people who had planned it, I mean, officers and people in the War Department. And so through very routine kinds of audits of what's in the archives, things began getting declassified as people began to ask for them. The first written account of this that I'm aware of that went into any detail was a magazine article that uh, was illustrated by Arthur Shillstone in 1985 for Smithsonian. Shillstone, who, wor- who worked for Smithsonian, was a, very, was a very gifted artist, and he had been one of the members of this unit. Mm. And that was really the first and only you know, peep out of this thing. So once I got to the archives, I realized there was a whole raft of paperwork that was now being declassified and was available, and also lots of stuff missing, lots of things that turned up only in the footlockers that some of these guys had brought home from the war or in their diaries, letters, you know, other kinds of things that they had saved, which allowed me to piece together the story. And, of course, they're wonderful interviews. They were very forthcoming in helping me to fill in the gaps. I suppose that's one thing we should be really grateful for, is that you came along uh, interested in this story at a time when, uh, well, many of the principal participants, as you already said, are, are already gone, and uh, the day will come when, when none of these men are alive anymore. And Certainly. So, well, one, of, one of my best informants was Colonel Clifford Simonson, who is, you know, at the ripe old age of 93, still going strong. And, uh, you know, he, he basically, he was one of those guys I found through an Internet search, you know, call, cold calling people till I found a, a guy that would tell me about a guy who would tell me about a guy. And then <laughs> I finally got to him, and this was, you know, late August in, uh, of 2000, and he said, geez, you know, come out to Colorado and see me and we'll talk. And he goes, better yet, we're having a reunion in two weeks. Why don't you meet us up there? And so I, you know, got on a plane to Watertown, New York, and met, you know, 30-some of these guys, and they were just remarkable. Mm. And it, it is true, they're, they're uh, older gentlemen now. The youngest at that point was 74, the oldest was Simonson, and most were in their 80s. Uh, Bill Blass, unfortunately, has already passed away since I've talked to him. He was one of the, the key members of the group as well. Mm. One of the things I appreciated about the book was that, you know, as we read this and we think to, them, uh, we think to ourselves initially maybe, Boy, this is incredible and and unprecedented. I've never heard of anything like this. But time and time again through the book, we are reminded that the art of deception has been uh, a part of warfare almost from the beginning. Give us some sense of that. I think the first time that anybody attacked anybody else in the Stone Age, uh, there were probably the next time they tried to attack, the the person who had been attacked the first time tried some ruse in order to fool them and gain an advantage. Because that's really what it's all about. There, there are two great advantages to deception and warfare. One of them is that if you're weaker and you're either attacking or being attacked by a stronger force, it gives you an edge. Uh, and that was 
proved time and again in this war as in others. The other thing is that, and, and there's a very humane uh, sense in which it does this, it helps you to limit casualties. That is, if you can attack a stronghold without having to go head-on with the enemy and slaughter people on both sides, but in some other way cleverly get them to surrender or cleverly get behind them do some ruse and attack them in such a way that there's very few casualties, you actually can fight a much more humane kind of war. So one way of looking at this is that uh, you know, these guys did a mission that was quite altruistic from a lot of points of view was altruistic in the sense that they were putting themselves on the line, literally making living decoys out of themselves, saying, here, come get us, while they pretended to be something they were not, which was you know, 10,000 strong with tanks and guns. And on the other hand, what they were doing philosophically was trying to end the war with a lot less bloodshed, and I think they succeeded marvelously in both. That's right. You give us actually two main purposes behind this, one of them being to minimize casualties. The other is really the, the, the essential thing here is the idea of turning weakness into strength right. and uh, of putting the underdog into a better position than they might otherwise be. And uh, it's important maybe for us to, to remember that at least at certain points in the Second World War, in certain situations, that's exactly what we were. Well, for a very long time, I mean, we have to remember that we didn't have an Allied victory until October of 1942 when Montgomery and Alamein, El Alamein in North Africa finally was able to defeat Rommel on the battlefield. And he did this through a magic trick. In fact, he had a magician named Jasper Meskelin working for him. And what they basically did was create a fake army on the southern flank by the use of uh, decoys, by the use of radio traffic. They had uh, created dummy soldiers, dummy railroad lines, and so forth. And then they actually, under cover of darkness and under cover of uh, other kinds of camouflage, took an entire army and moved it to the northern flank, which is where they jumped off from, with great success. And Churchill recognized this in the House of Commons. I mean, it was a, a kind of turning point in modern warfare deception. Incredible. And it was the kind of the touchstone upon which all, all else was modeled. It's interesting to me, actually, uh, if we want to go back much earlier than that, I had not heard the story or don't remember hearing the story that dates back from our own war between the states and actually something which the Confederates did uh, in trying to bluff uh, Union General George McClellan right. using something that I think you called Quaker guns. Quaker guns. Tell well, the story. This is great. Deception works best when it's aimed at the decision maker on the enemy side. That is, you want to target that person that can actually change the outcome of the battle. And you want him to do something you want him to do rather than what's good for him. In this case, the Confederates knew that McClellan was a very timid general. He was very good on the parade ground, but they weren't sure you know, in combat that he would stand up. And so what they did as he invaded Virginia and was on the road to Richmond was they, the Confederates cut down logs painted them black, and stuck them in embrasures all along the roadway so that McClellan would wake up in the morning and his scouts would report cannons everywhere. And they weren't cannons, they were logs. But they understood their general, and they targeted that decision-maker absolutely right on the money. And he saw those guns, pulled back, and said, I can't attack without massive reinforcement. And, of course, lost the initiative, and thereby Richmond held out until virtually the end of the war. One more point which you make in the introduction, which I really think uh, bears a bit of discussion. You say at one point, uh, not all soldiers are fond of practicing deception. And, uh, and you say that f f for many military personnel, this really runs entirely contrary to their, their basic uh, instincts. And, and you, you go so far even to say that traditionally for American officers, secret soldiering of this kind carried a whiff of dishonor. 
Uh, yes. Explain that a little further, and and how that, if it was, uh, could be could be overcome. Well, Cliff Simonson pointed this out to me. He was a West Point man, straight up and down, and he was given the task with this new unit of planning and showing them how to do what they were going to do. And he had no more clue about how to do this than I did as I started the book. And all he knew about soldiering was that the honorable thing to do is you charge at the enemy. You lead men in open battle, and that's the honorable thing. What he was being told to do was to lie not just to the enemy, but to his own superiors, to his own men on, you know, on his own side, to do things that seemed like they were skulking and in some ways cowardly. You know, that uh, this was not the war of the cavalry soldier riding into the glorious battle, the glorious charge. And there was a huge uh, problem undoing that mindset among the West Point officers, many of whom were picked to command this unit. And what eventually happened was that Simonson, as he began the arduous work of trying to turn this unit into an operational reality, actually came to appreciate the subtleties of it. I mean, he, he was a man who was a quick study. He was open to new ideas in a way that many soldiers of his era perhaps were not. And what he began to do was to become creative. And after a while, he became the most ardent disciple for this kind of warfare, partly because it could save so many lives. And so like many uh, converts, he became the most rabid supporter of this particular brand of warfare. And the other thing to remember is that the Geneva Convention says a lot about deception. And there's a fine line between what's called deception and what's called treachery. Deception is acceptable. You can pretend to have Quaker guns, as they did in the Confederate armies. You cannot surrender and, uh, under a flag of truce, then suddenly pull out guns and begin shooting at your enemy after you've mm. disarmed them. You know, you can't do those kinds. So there's a fine line, and there's lots of room for ethical uh, sliding back and forth that these guys had to deal with. Right. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, because, of course, uh, our, our military action in Iraq right now brings to mind that, uh, you know, we're, we're one to just... Uh, draw comparisons in a very superficial sort of way, one might sort of think that, that some of these same principles are, are underway in Iraq in, the, in, in some of the incidents that we've heard of, of, of Iraqis surrendering and then having a concealed weapon and opening fire, or other cases in which uh, military uh, hardware will be hidden uh, within the walls of a hospital or something right. like that. All, so, all this stuff specifically forbidden by the Geneva Convention. You can't put troops, for example, in, a, in an ambulance painted with a red cross. You know, you're not allowed to dress your people in the uniform of your enemy, which both the Germans did in World War II and reportedly Saddam Hussein's Republican Guards did in the, the recent war. So this is an utterly different kind of deception. Right. And, you know, the other thing that should be said about the reluctance of those West Point officers was that there was very little chance for glory in this kind of a battle. I mean, if you're leading the 28th Infantry and you go through a bloody battle, at the end of it you all stand up, you pin your medals on, your picture's in the paper, and you get promoted. These guys, from the rank of captain on up, it was, it were in a dead zone for promotion. Nobody was ever going to know what they did. They couldn't leave the unit because they knew too much. They couldn't be promoted in the unit because there wasn't room for that many senior officers. And they weren't going to get the medals that they might have gotten. They weren't going to get the career boost they might have gotten. You know, Simonson should have probably been a two- or three-star general by the end of the war. As it was, he ended up as a colonel. Hmm. So, you know, it was not the kind of way to make your reputation for the, the quick-rising, ambitious soldier from West Point. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking today in the morning show with Philip Gerard, who is the author of a fascinating book entitled Secret Soldiers, how a troop of American artists, designers, and sonic wizards won World War II's battles of deception uh, against the Germans. One of the things that your title implies is that uh, the Germans maybe had their own aspirations for 
for such deception. Uh, is, is, is that, am I misreading your title, or, or, or were they in this game as well to some extent? Well, sometimes you're in a battle and you don't know it. And I think uh, sometimes the Germans were suspicious of being deceived, and yet again and again they made wrong decisions. The Germans actually had begun the war using massive deceptions. The, the, the way they went into Poland was based on a ruse, for example. They staged a mock uh, attack on a radio station. They went into Russia in a surprise attack. They went into Norway dressed as tourists. But because they got very uh, bold and, and very full of themselves, in fact, German doctrine all the way almost until the end of the war stated that any German attack would succeed for a specified amount of time, and that varied from a couple of days to a couple of weeks because they were so confident in the overwhelming weight of their armor. In a sense, they lost the flexibility that they could have gotten through deception. On the one occasion that they did use it, they really mimicked what the Americans had done, and that was during the Battle of the Bulge. They hid two entire armies right under the nose of the Americans, and through radio traffic and camouflage and other kinds of diversionary movements, they convinced everybody from Eisenhower on down that they no longer had the ability or the the uh, materiel or the men to wage war. They convinced them they had no more airplanes. And then suddenly, just before Christmas in 1944, waves of Luftwaffe bombers are coming out of the skies. You know, two entire armies are swooping down through Belgium and Luxembourg. And these guys, by the way, were caught right in the middle of it. Hmm. And were scrambling around uh, in, in many ways, becoming real combat troops for the first time, other times scrambling to get their top-secret equipment out of the way of the advancing Germans and then participated, as we've, as we've talked about, in the relief of Bastogne. We learn a lot in the pages of this book, and one of the things I really appreciate is that we learn about things that we sort of thought we already knew about. For instance, the art of camouflage. And you go to considerable lengths to explain, really, the principles of, of camouflage and, and sort of the difference between you know doing it brilliantly well and doing it not so well. And... Uh, it, it it seems as though it, that's one chapter of this story is how the art of camouflage really uh, uh, blossomed in, into something uh, almost unprecedented in its sophisticated uh, sophistication. Well, art uh, camouflage really is an art, I think, and it began with artists. It began with artist uh, Albert, uh, I'm sorry, Henderson Theater in the um, uh, beginning of the century, and then. Uh, the French artists who were working with the Camouflage Corps in World War I really perfected this based on cubic, cubist rather, and geometric designs, as well as the natural camouflage of birds in the wild and so forth. So there's an incredible history there. And what these guys did was have to take it to an almost postmodern uh, stage in which you had to camouflage something, but you had to do it just inexpertly enough that it looked like it had been camo- <clears throat> pardon me, camouflaged for real. But in fact, you had made a, a mistake that was deliberate in order that the Germans would actually see what's in effect not a real tank, camouflaged, but um, a fake tank, a rubber blow-up tank, camouflaged to look like it had been camouflaged. So there was a real kind of double blind going on there. Nowadays, I understand that we have camouflage uniforms that actually can um, make infrared light not as sensitive to them and can hide soldiers from night vision goggles and things. So it's come a long way, and it probably has some more ways to go. It's an incredible book, and we learn about the participation of all kinds of rather nameless figures, but also the, the contribution of important people like actor Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., um, all told thrillingly and fascinatingly in this book called Secret Soldiers. Philip Gerard, I'm so grateful that you wrote this book, and I'm sure that all of the men and women, perhaps, that participated in this work are so grateful, too, that this book has been written and this story finally told. 
Well, one of my great pleasures in doing the book was being able to meet these guys and also to help some of them meet other pals that they hadn't seen since the war. And I think they were dying to tell their story, and I felt privileged to be the one to be able to tell it. Secret Soldiers is published uh, by Plume. Philip Gerard, we thank you for your time. My great pleasure. Thank you.